I disagree wholeheartedly with Andy Stanley on many issues. Uh, and if you're sorry, I'm not sorry. Um, but this one in particular. He's famous for saying, we must unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. So much so that he wrote a book on it to that effect, trying to make the case that the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments no longer have any bearing on Christians. And we should just focus on the New Testament, and particularly just the words of Jesus, because um, those are the ones that make us feel warm and fuzzy. That's, that's my paraphrase of his book. This is why I disagree wholeheartedly. I think we should re-hitch ourselves to the Old Testament. Because today, something like Passover, we have no connection to. It's so far removed from us. We're so ignorant to the relationship to God and his people and the feast of unleavened bread and the, and, and the process of the, the Passover dinner that we lose all of its symbolism. And so for most of church history, if you read the early fathers, when they would gather for the Lord's Supper, they would call it Passover. These terms were synonymous. They brought along the symbolism of everything that it meant to Israel, but so much more that they have in Christ. And so if we are ignorant to Passover and we don't understand the symbolism and the timing, we, we, we lose the real effect to Israel of the crucifixion. Because don't get this confused. If you were a Jew at that time and you were in Israel, make your way to Jerusalem. You're there for the Passover. The, the screaming of the lambs who were slaughtered, the blood, the meal, the blood um, that, 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 that marks all of this. And then you have a crucifixion right outside the city and a very, with a very well-known teacher. The symbolism would not be lost on you, but it's lost on us today. And so for what I want us to see this morning is I want to see the significance for them, but also for us. To prove to you that our table, the Lord's table that we approach here every week, is our Passover meal. Our reminder, our reminder of our deliverance. Paul tells us that all these Old Testament uh, characters and stories and accounts are there for our example. Because there's nothing that we encounter that, that, is, that is unique to us. God has done things in the past in, in types and shadows that point to the realization of what we have in Christ. So in Mark, we're going to continue our theme where we begin in chapter 14. This in, the, the entire theme of this chapter is death. This dark cloud looming over the text and looming over the events and the disciples. And so we're going to look at two events. The preparation for Passover uh, that Jesus is sending his disciples to prepare. Juxtaposed or set against the preparation of Judas and the chief priest to betray, arrest, and murder Jesus Christ. We're going to contrast the preparation and slaying of a Passover lamb for the meal of remembrance that, that marks deliverance in the Old Covenant and the preparation to slay the Passover lamb. The symbol of the symbol and effect of salvation in the new covenant. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 10 through 21.
Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet them. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Awesome, mighty, great, wonderful, but also omniscient and omnipotent. There is no detail in human history that escapes you, that is outside of your grasp or outside of your providence. Lord, even in a text like this, it's so despicable and heart-wrenching. You are glorified. Pray that your spirit would give us wisdom to discern your will, to rightly divide your word. We use how you spoke to your saints in the old covenant and how you speak to your saints in the new covenant. Bring together the union of divine revelation. We are a people delivered. We are a people covered. We are a people set apart. We are a people preserved for the praise of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so jumping right back in. Where we, came, where we left off last week. Last, last week we talked about the, um, the deal or the, the pledge that was given to Judas. And so I want to add a few details. Last week we didn't get into the other Gospels, but this week we will a little bit more. So the first thing I want you to see in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve? Don't skip over that. Who was one of the twelve? Why is that important? Why is that detail there? Who are the twelve? They are Jesus' disciples. They are Jesus' closest friends. They are with him every day, day in and day out. They ate with him. They slept with him. They listened to him. They walked with him. They knew him better than anyone else knew him. He was one of those guys. And not just that. He's one of the ones that they sent out, that Jesus sent out. 
Judas preached. Judas healed. Cast out demons. And proclaimed the kingdom of God. So much so that not one of the other 11 suspected him. Think about that. One of those 12. He went to the chief priests in order to betray him. Matthew includes the detail that he asked the question. What will you give me if I hand Jesus over to you? He's not just going on a fishing expedition. He's going with an agenda. What will you give me? What's in it for me if I hand Jesus over? Luke adds the detail that then Satan entered into him. This is reprehensible. So much so that many older dictionaries would have Judas in the dictionary as an example of betrayal. And see betrayal? The guy's picture is in the dictionary. He has been so synonymous that even secular people who've never opened a Bible know what it means to be called a Judas. And he's not alone because when he offers this proposition to the chief priests, when they heard it, verse 11, they were glad, rejoiced in the Greek. Think about how sick that is. We read earlier in the chapter in verse one that they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And when they get their opportunity, they're like, we've got him now. And they rejoice. How evil How wicked. Can you imagine how much you have to hate someone to rejoice that they're about to be delivered over and killed? Let alone the son of God. This is how wicked they are. And what does Judas do it for? They were glad and they promised to give him money. Matthew tells us it's 30 pieces of silver. And we contrasted this with the gift of of the woman last week, Mary, and the expensive ointment. Judas betrays Jesus for about a third of what Mary spent to cover him in this costly perfume. It shows what he values. So there's an important lesson for us here about our money and our motivations. How easily it is to be compromised. How easy it is for us to lower our standards when there's money involved. Well, what's in it for me? Well, maybe I wouldn't do it for that, but if you raise the stakes a little bit, then I can bend the rules. I can, I, I can bend my convictions. Anyone other than me ever been there? I live most of my life motivated by money. Putting a dollar sign on everything. Maybe some of you still do. Maybe some of you are so concerned with your, your, your finances, what you don't have, what you do have, how you can get more, that maybe you have done some things that you shouldn't have, have moved into some gray areas, crossed some lines that you wouldn't do otherwise. This is the, the ultimate example of that. Because if you follow the money, you will see what people treasure. So here we find ourselves, this is the introduction to our text in 10 and 11. Last week, the chief priest sought a way to arrest and kill Jesus. This week, he sought an opportunity. It's the same exact phrase in Greek. That he sought an opportunity to betray him. 
Now he is in league with them. Now he's doing the same thing that the chief priests and the elders had been doing all along. Now he finds his agreement with them. This is premeditated betrayal. He initiated it and he knew it would lead to murder. And he jumped at the opportunity. I don't want you to lose the sobering nature of this. So both in the Bible and our court system getting its direction from the Bible, there is a distinction between killing in self-defense or killing in time of war versus premeditated murder. There is a distinction in the act and there's a distinction in the consequences. If you must kill to protect you or your family, there is a protection. But if you desire to kill, you deserve death. So I think there's a parallel with our sins as well. Is there a difference between our sins of the moment and our premeditated sins that we all have. What are those sins that you love? Those sins that you plan to do. Those lies in your mind that you concoct. That you craft in such a way that you won't be found out. The cheating or stealing that you go to great lengths to cover up. Or those things that we do in the darkness where we know we will not be found out. Judas puts all those things of our fallen humanity on display. And we need to be very careful of our sins that we love, our sins that we fan and encourage. Because as James lays out, they start small, but they lead to death. This is a pattern of a man who little by little was stealing from the treasury and trusted him to Jesus. And who knows what other sins he was encouraging along the way. And he culminates them into murder for 30 shekels of silver. And for us, there will be greater consequences. Even for those in Christ, I did not say condemnation, but consequences. When we encourage and love our sin and plan and and pursue them with joy. So with that in mind, Judas making his preparation to betray Jesus. Jesus is making his preparation for Passover. This is his final meal with the disciples, his most important meal with the disciples on earth. Let's begin verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, these two terms are are used synonymously. The Passover meal and the feast of unleavened bread, they they, they happened together and they were spoken of together. So, again, I said I want to rehitch ourselves to the Old Testament. I wish we could spend a great amount of time in Exodus, um, but we're going to look at some highlights. So turn to Exodus chapter 12. If you want to read the entire account, you can read through Exodus 12. And there's a lot of details, a lot of repetition. Um, but there's a few things I want you to pay attention to. So Mark says the feast of the unleavened bread, the day when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Let's look here in chapter 12. 
First thing I want you to see. Verse two. Verse one, the Lord speaks to Moses. Verse two, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. This was so important. This is New Year's Eve. This sets the entire calendar or New Year's Day. Excuse me. This sets the entire calendar for the Jews. This is so important. You're going to mark your years by it. This is day one of your year. And you will sacrifice and it will begin by setting apart this lamb And then a couple days later, sacrificing it. What should mark this lamb? Verse five, the lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. This is the day, the 14th of this month. Abib in the Old Testament, um, uh, Nisan in in, uh, later Jewish tradition. And so they would select the lamb earlier on in the day. They would sacrifice it at twilight. as The sun is going down and the, the meal would begin at 6 p.m. in the evening. This, this tradition is followed throughout history, except for um, portions of unfaithfulness in Israel. But now they are, they are uh, going through the, the Passover again. So looking at, at a couple other things. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt. God is telling them what he's going to do. Remember, the last plague just happened. Uh, Israel is still in Egypt. And I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. So he's going to strike this on people and animals. He's going to decimate the next generation of Egypt. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. This is also a polemic. Meaning, this is a refutation of all the false gods in Egypt. I will destroy your firstborns and I will destroy your false gods. I am declaring who I am. I have authority over man, beast, the heavens, the earth. They are all mine. And so as this is recounted, as this is told to subsequent generations, what are you to tell them when your children are asked, Why do we do this? Let's skip down to verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. If you were there making bricks from sunup to sundown, oppressed whipped, beaten by the Egyptians and God delivers you, you bet you would bow down and worship. And every generation was to be reminded of this. We lose this. We lose the significance to God's people, how great a redemption they have. It's still not as great as ours. We'll get there in a moment. So, um, Turn over to Deuteronomy as we continue through our our Mark passage. So the imagery I want you to get here as you're turning, it's going to be Deuteronomy chapter uh, 16. Um, The imagery I want you to get here is of two things. The blood that saves. The blood sprinkled over the doorpost. And then in the wilderness, the bread that sustains. This unleavened bread there that, that they were to make. The blood saves them. The bread sustains them. This is the, the, the picture that they had. And so when the disciples ask Jesus, 
They said, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, this is customary for servants of the master to go and make preparations. The master is not going to prepare the meal himself. So they're, they're doing what good students would do. Um, but they have to go make a preparation. Where? Remember where they're staying. They're staying in Bethany. They're staying outside of the, of the city. But Jesus did not break one note, one jot or tittle of the law. I want to read the first section of Deuteronomy 16 because I think this is helpful. It says, Observe the month of Abib and, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God delivered you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the pa- Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or herd at the place that the Lord will choose. Where did the Lord choose? Jerusalem. This is his place of, sancti- of um, sanctioned worship. So they're staying in Bethany. They must find a place in Jerusalem. Um, and to make his name dwell there. This is the place where everyone come because this is where God dwells. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread. The bread of affliction. It's not supposed to be enjoyable. This is the bread you, the bread you take with you to remind you you just came out of Egypt. This is not warm, fluffy bread that melts in your mouth. This is bread without, without yeast to remind you that you had to get out of there quickly. And it's the bread of your affliction. Notice the language here. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. That all the days of your life you, were, you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. This is Deuteronomy. When is this written? How many generations away from Exodus are we in Deuteronomy? The first generation is dead. But God says, you. This is covenantal language. Because no one except the children who were alive then could remember what went on. They were dead. But he says, you were delivered when you came out. God is speaking to a nation, not a person. He covenants with his people. This is a reminder to the nation of Israel to be passed down from generation to generation. Verse 5. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you but at the place that the Lord your God will choose, Jerusalem, to make his name dwell there, that they shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. Again, Jesus and his disciples are following to the letter of everything God prescribes. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall go out to your tents. For six days you shall eat the unleavened bread. And the seventh day there should be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. Uh, You shall do no work on it. This is what the Jews were required to do. And this is what Jesus does. I'll give you a picture. But God goes to great detail. So this sticks in people's heads. And we should familiarize ourselves with these things because the symbolism is great for us. We'll get more there in the end. So continuing on verse 13, we'll move a little faster in this, this middle section. Uh, And he sent two of his disciples So this is a consistent biblical principle. There is accountability. There is there is unity. The disciples are not to do things alone. No one ever sends himself out as an apostle. They are sent by the Lord. They're sent two by two. And Luke tells us that this is Peter and John. So he sends them into the city, into Jerusalem, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. A couple things here. Go into the city. Jesus is in control. Jesus directs them. This is similar to the triumphal entry, even similar language. Go into the city. These things will already be prepared for you. This is what I'm setting up. And so when you go there, you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. 
Well, why is that detail included? Because in those days, men didn't carry water. That was a job for women, children, or slaves. If a man is carrying a jar of water, he's going to stand out. Kind of like a man wearing dress and, a dress and makeup. Maybe not so much today, but um, it, it, it's, it's supposed to stand out. It's supposed to be something that, this, that, that catches your eye. Because God is doing something unique there. He's probably the only man in Jerusalem carrying water. And what he will show you is a house. And, when you, and wherever he enters it, say, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Jesus is not being rude here. We care too much about politeness in modern Western society. Jews are very direct, and that's why I love them. Where is my, where's my room? Where is it? I know you've got something set up for me. And this is, this is perfectly acceptable for a teacher to ask. Because in that communal culture, that hospitable culture, if you lived in Jerusalem, you were to leave a space available for pilgrims. There should be a place for every Jew to have the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And so this is not out of the ordinary. They would have welcomed this. This this would have been common practice if he was doing his job. And so uh, he will show you, verse 15, a large upper room furnished and ready there prepared for us. The... uh, so if you have not seen what a, um, a house in ancient Palestine looked like. So generally, they would be one story, maybe two. Uh, you would live, sleep underneath. Uh, you would prepare, um, do, your, do your food preparation underneath. But because of the, the heat, you would, you would often cook, um, dry, your, dry your clothes, and eat either on the roof itself or you, you might have a uh, second tier with a, with a, with a parapet, uh, a, a wall, making sure no one falls off like when Paul is preaching. Um, and so that is where you would, you would generally dine under the sun. They didn't get a lot of rain. They're not worried about getting rained out like we do in Florida. Plus, you would get the breeze, and plus it would be a great view. That sounds beautiful. And so when he asks for the upper room, it is probably on the rooftop somewhere um, or some, up, uh, some open-air enclosed area. And... The language used here, um, it will be furnished and ready. The, the, the Greek word is spread out, meaning the dining couches, the pillows, the mats, they're all there. As they would recline at table, not sitting at a table like, like, like we would, but um, either reclining on long benches or couches or on the ground and then the food would be laid out in the middle. So you walk in and it's carpets and, and pillows and everything and it is ready to go. And so there they go. Verse 18, and the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. So here's their uh, preparation. They've got to go out. They've got to find the lamb. They've got to have the lamb sacrificed according to all the specifications. They've got to get the food, the wine, the bitter herbs, the the bread. Um, And so they've got to go out and uh, procure all these things. But notice that they find it exactly how Jesus tells them in everything that Jesus does, things are planned and things are accounted for. So before we move on to our next section, I want you to think about this. Um, All of us know the difference between going to visit someone who's hospitable and someone who's not. You ever go to visit family and and uh, they think of everything They're They're the ones who welcome you at the door, who have the towel set out. 
um, who make you feel right at home. It's like better than being at home because you have all the comforts of home and you don't have to do anything. Anybody have those family? Uh, we, we love those. We love those family. Um, or you go on that, that, that Airbnb where like they're, they, they just go above and beyond. They, they think of every little thing and how, um, how that makes such a difference on your stay. Because we know the other side. Anyone ever been to those people's house who like forget that you're coming and you get there and you, you realize, like, have you thought this through for more than five minutes? You ever been in a house or like stayed in someone's room with uh, bugs or not have clean towels or uh, not have anything figured out? Oh, Tree said, yep. So I guess it was just us. So the rest of you guys have never had that experience. But that is a very big difference when someone is not hospitable and they, they, haven't, they haven't thought of, of, of these things. Or the time we go to stay somewhere and my wife's allergic to cats and there's a cat sitting on the bed. And we're like, now what do we do? And we say what Jeremy says about cats. What do you say about cats, Jeremy? Nothing good. <laughs> he says they're, they're a direct product of the fall. And that's Jeremy's favorite thing to say about cats. I, I'm an equal opportunity offender. I'll offend cat people and dog people both. Um, but yeah, so if, if they don't think these things through, it's going to make your stay uncomfortable. But how much more with our sovereign God? I think we operate sometimes like, like God has not thought this through. Like we get here it's like, all right, God, you, you must have been asleep for the last five minutes because you certainly couldn't be in this. Just like Jesus knows exactly where the man will be, exactly where the room will be. There is nothing, nothing in your life that God has not planned for, accounted for and ordained. Amen. But how often we forget that, how often we forget that everything he does is for his glory. And because it glorifies him, it is for the good of his people. And everything he prepares, he will equip you for. Amen. 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 But most of us are too busy asking questions. Most of us are too busy talking to listen. How many of you, if Jesus would have said, go into the city uh, in a person you've never met, in a place you've never been, and find a room for me, how many of you would have asked 30 questions before you would have taken a step? (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people raise their hands. You forget how good and sovereign our God is. Are so many of you struggling in your relationship with the Lord because you are questioning God more than you are listening? Because you are questioning his word more than you are sitting under it. All right, let's move on. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. So like we said before, uh, the meal begins at sunset, 6 p.m., which in the, the Jewish accounting begins the next day. So sunset begins Friday. This is now Friday. This is the, the Passover day. Um, what's also interesting is here is where John inserts that Jesus washes the disciples' feet. This is an act of a servant. This is how he begins the meal. To So I came to serve you. This is incredible, especially for those of us who hate dirty feet. For those of us who I can't go to sleep if, if my feet are dirty. Sheree's laughing because she knows it's, it's, it's true. So I completely understand the washing your feet before you come into the house thing. I'm just one of those weird people. But Jesus does it as an act of service to set the tone for this dinner. And so as they were 
as they were reclining at table and eating. So this dinner would have gone on for hours. Each, each part of the dinner would, um, would be accompanied by a retelling of the events. And so as they're reclining, as they're eating, everything's good. Um, everything's normal and they're relaxing. And then the bombshell. Imagine you're eating Passover. You've heard these, these things your, your entire life. And then Jesus says, truly, I say to you, one, will, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. It probably sounded like it just sounded a moment ago. You could hear a pin drop. One of you, one of you eating with me, one of the twelve, one of those closest to me will betray me. This is the second time the twelve comes up to remind us that these are the closest ones to Jesus. This is unthinkable. That one of them would betray him. The whole room stops and they begin to be sorrowful. This great, intense sorrow. And they say to him one after another, um, the ESV doesn't capture it here. It is surely not I, certainly not I, is the original language. One by one. Peter, surely not I. James, surely not I. John, Andrew, Simon, Philip, Bartholomew. Going down the list, every one. Not me, not me. And Judas right along with him with the silver jingling in his pocket. Yeah. It places every disciple on edge. This is a moment of self-examination for everyone sitting at that table. And so this is an important principle for us as well, because we're going to approach the table here after the sermon. This is why we examine ourselves before we approach the table. Every one of us should be able to confidently say, I am in Christ. My life, my faith is in Christ. I would not betray him. He is my life like we sung a moment ago. And some of you should ask the question, am I the faker in the room? Is it me? Do I trust Christ? Is my faith in him? Do I believe in him? Do I believe in his sacrifice in me or am I just trying to fit in with everyone else? This is why we take his table seriously. This is why we give those warnings because one of them brought condemnation on his head because he said, it's not me. And it was. So Jesus then gives them the explanation in verse 20. He says to them, it is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So this word, imbapto, same root as baptism. This is a dip. This is dropping into the plate, into the bowl. So why use this? What's the practice here? One, they didn't have knives and forks. There's no silverware. They ate with their hands. This is a very eastern communal meal. Where everyone is sharing everything. And so people ask all the time. We won't do it uh, in, in service. But before service. People ask, why do you use intinction? 
Why do you use the method of taking bread and dipping it into wine? I want to give you an Old Testament example, which I think is, is helpful here. Because again, we are 21st century Westerners. Uh, or you can turn to Ruth and, and it will be on the screen as well. But we are 21st century Westerners and we like everything individualized. Uh, there were no little plastic cups at the, uh, at, at the, the Last Supper. Um, but we, we use what we're given. But as 21st century Westerners, we like everything individualized. We like everything handed to us. And so there is a, a sense of, of, of honor that happens at this kind of table. And I want to give you the most beautiful example in all of Scripture. Ruth chapter 2 verse 11. If you know the story of Ruth, uh, if not read it, it's a short book. It's great. But Ruth leaves her people, um, attaches to Naomi, and Boaz notices. Verse 11. Uh, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and come to people that you did not know. She said, my your people will be your will be my people. Your God will be my God. She disattaches herself from her pagan background and now attaches herself to the God of Israel. And the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord that the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is a beautiful picture of a woman whose husband dies and and comes in to find refuge in the people of God. And she finds refuge in this man, Boaz. And then she says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, eat some bread and dip the morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed her uh, her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. So this is what we don't understand as Westerners. If you've ever been invited to um, a Muslim's house to eat, and, and, and you should if they invite you, go eat and share the gospel. Um, but if you've ever eaten with someone from the Middle East or you go to Jerusalem today, this is very much how a meal would, would happen. And it is one of the greatest honors for a master to say, you dip your bread in my cup. We are a little germophobic and we're like, that's not really some of you are squinting right now. Um, but it is a great honor. It's also a great shame. The shame is compounded when the master says, dip your bread in my cup. And then you betray him. So when John adds the detail that Jesus takes the bread and passes it to Judas and instructs him to dip it into the cup. Jesus is driving the point home. You are bringing shame on yourself. This is the greatest party faux pas that you can do in those days. Is to accept someone's food, dip your your bread in the cup at the same time and then betray them. We miss this because we don't understand the the cultural significance of these pictures in the Old Testament. We read from Psalm 41 earlier. Look at verse nine again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is egregious. This is unforgivable. If Judas didn't take his own life, he could be scorned and cast out for betraying the master of the feast. And so that's why Jesus uses the language that he does. This is strong because it is meant to be strong. So not just theologically, culturally, but 
eschatologically too. The end of times. Verse 21. We're going to wrap up here. After a few minutes. Um, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I want to break down quite a few things here. This puts a definitive stamp on this section of the chapter. It's set up in verse 1. They're seeking a way to betray him. Fleshed out in 10 and 11, Judas gives them a way to betray him. And now Jesus describes what is deserved by the one who does betray him. A couple vital details. Number one, for the Son of Man goes as it is written. What does that tell us? That tells us of God's divine sovereignty. It was written. This is nothing new. This must come to pass. God has determined it beforehand. Number one, divine sovereignty. At the same time, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Whatever happens is of God and is not apart from God's sovereignty, but the responsibility is still on man. He cannot escape this. God can uphold his, so- his sovereignty and punish the betrayer and be completely consistent in his character. We see this in Acts 2. Acts 2, 22 and 23, uh, the, the great sermon that, that Peter preaches. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. I'm in Acts 2, 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, giving God all the glory, God all the direction. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Too many people try to stand up for God. He does not need you to defend him. He's a big boy. We do not need to get God off the hook. God planned to do this. It was written, and we'll get there in just a moment. But at the same time, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. This tension is all throughout the scriptures. God is sovereign over all things, even murder, yet God is not guilty. How does this work? I do not know. I'm not God. God's purview and God's power are outside of our control, but we must accept these things. Spurgeon says, I do not try to reconcile two friends. God is sovereign over all things and I am responsible for my decisions. How do these two things work? I don't know. But God does and they do. And they're in perfect harmony with one another. Next thing I want you to see. His use of the Son of Man, his favorite title. Says it twice here. The Son of Man goes as it is written. Divine sovereignty. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Human responsibility. Now, if you're a student of the Old Testament, how many prophecies are in the Old Testament of the Son of Man being betrayed? Zero. There are no direct passages. No direct prophecies that say the Son of Man will be betrayed. But who will be betrayed? You can shout it out. Who will be betrayed in the Old Testament? Suffering servant. Somebody over here said it. What Jesus is doing here is essential. The Jews would have seen these as two completely separate prophecies. 
We, when we open the scriptures, we see that all the scriptures point to Christ, but the Jews didn't have that understanding. The son of man is also the suffering servant. The one who will be high and lifted up and glorified is also the one who will be slain and crushed by the hand of God. Jesus is bringing together two essential themes and prophecies in the Old Testament. As it is written, the, the son of man that you saw in Daniel, the one that the ancient of days gives glory and honor and praise forever. He's also the one that God will crush. Turn to Isaiah 53. Jesus is doing on the spot. Interpret on the spot hermeneutics for his disciples. Which I'm really jealous of. I would have loved to heard that explanation. I want to pick up in verse 10. Again, divine sovereignty here. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was written. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. There is a promise and prophecy of death. He will be crushed and God gave the order. Yet, with that promise of death, there's a promise of life, resurrection. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He will die. He will be crushed as an offering for guilt. But he will have long days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see again and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. and He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What Jesus is doing here is bringing all of this Old Testament symbolism to bear in the gospel. Substitutionary atonement of the suffering servant and reigning glory of the son of man. Only one person can embody both of those. He brings God's sovereign decree, the wicked acts of man, the problem of sin and death, all with one common answer, the son of man. And the son of man, the very son of God who is sitting before them is contrasted with the man by whom he is betrayed. There is a contrast between the son of man and the son of perdition. Great word from the King James. It means ruin. It means destruction. The son of man sits across from the son of perdition. And Jesus kind of lays this out in John 17. In his high priestly prayer, uh, you can turn there. Otherwise, just listen. As I bring this to your attention. In John 17, Jesus says, verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in their name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. There is a beautiful union with Christ and his disciples. There's a beautiful intercession with the Son and the Father. There's a beautiful love for his own. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. He's 
He's doing this a few hours after the meal. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's looking around the room at 11 of them. They are yours. I have not lost them. Any other one who puts his faith in me, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, I've kept all of them. Except the son of destruction. The son of perdition that the scriptures may be fulfilled. This is God's plan. He raised up Judas. A tear among the wheat growing. Just like all the rest but thrown into the fire. But now I am coming to you, Jesus says to the Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. This is not to be for our lament. This is to be for our joy. Even the son of destruction, even the betrayal of Judas is for the joy of the saints. Amen. Like the Egyptians who oppressed the people of God and their wickedness, they are destined for destruction. So is the son of perdition who betrays the son of man. And it is better for that man if he had not been born. What does that mean? I don't know, but it ain't good. There is literally a special place in hell for him. It would be better if he had not been born. And for those who love money, this world, themselves more than Christ, you have a very good view of them. Well, it's easy to think, no, I'm not that bad. Most people think, I've done plenty of good deeds in my life. I'm not as bad as Judas. You have never done as many good deeds as Judas. You have never walked with Jesus. You have never preached across Galilee. You have never exercised demons. You have never healed people. Judas did all those things and that could not save him. We have to remember your good works cannot save you. We have to remember when we are talking with those who are lost and they think that they are good. Judas was as good as they come until he betrayed the Savior. Because you have two options. You must die to yourself and live with Christ. Or you will be dead to him and live with Judas for eternity. This is the poignant nature of this passage. This is heart wrenching and it's meant to be. It's supposed to be. If it hurts, good. Because we are never to lose the weight of our own sin. We are never to lose the price required at Christ's death. But we are never to lose how great our salvation is. And how great a price paid for our redemption through his resurrection. I want to leave you with one final illustration in our application. As we saw, Jesus' death is forever to be linked to the Passover. It's final lamb. I want you to think about all the symbolism that is in the Passover that we briefly brushed over. And how it resonates for us. Israel had a Passover. They were in slavery To the Egyptians. Because God cares about his people. And God wants to put to death those who oppress his people. And put to death false gods. He sends the angel of death. God himself sends a a messenger. To destroy his enemies. And the only thing that will save them is a covering of blood. For the church. 
We, in our very nature, were enslaved to sin. We were under the oppression of something much worse than Egypt. Because he wants to be glorified in putting sin to death and saving his people. He sent a spotless lamb. Whose blood, a covering for his people, so that death would pass over them. So that they would live. Just like they had an exodus from slavery. They were brought out from oppression into freedom. We are brought out from oppression to freedom. We are brought out of Egypt, out of the place of, of, of sin. But just like Israel was brought into a time of wilderness. Where they wandered for years, awaiting the promised land. That's the Christian life, folks. Anyone feel like you're wandering in the wilderness right now? We are. All of us together. But we have the blood that saves and the bread that sustains. We have the cloud that guides by day. The Holy Spirit who directs us according to his word, according to conviction. He goes before us and he's our rear guard. We, we, we have the, the fire that lights the darkness at night. That guides our footsteps, the lamp unto our feet. That we might be protected as we journey and wander through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Like Israel, we are wandering. But like Israel, the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey. The promise of a place where we will find our rest in the Lord. The promise of a place where he will give us abundance is as sure as it was to them. Just as sure as Israel would reach Canaan, we will reach the new Jerusalem. And all of the symbolism of the Passover should be rich for us, should be meaningful for us. Because of Christ, we are headed to a land of milk and honey. I want to read you a quote from J.C. Ryle's commentary on Mark. Um, Just listen. It's easy enough to understand. I was going to rephrase it, but he says it so much better than I ever will. So I want you to think on these things before we approach the table. Then I'll give you some moment. I'll give you some time after I read this. He says, did the Passover remind the Jews of the marvelous deliverance of their ancestors out of the land of Egypt when God killed the firstborn? No doubt it did. But it was also meant to be a sign to them of the far greater redemption and deliverance from the bondage of sin, which was to be brought in by our Lord Jesus Christ. Did the Passover remind the Jews that by the death of an innocent lamb, the families of their ancestors were once exempted from the death of their firstborn? No doubt it did. But it also meant to teach them the far higher truth that the death of Christ on the cross was to be the life of the world. Did the Passover remind the Jews that the sprinkling of blood on the doorposts of their ancestors' houses preserved them from the sword of the destroying angel? No doubt it did. But it was also meant to show them far more the important doctrine that Christ's blood sprinkled on the human conscience cleanses it from all stain of sin and brings safety from the wrath to come. Did the Passover remind the Jews that none of their ancestors were safe from the destroying angel unless they actually ate of the slain lamb? No doubt it did. But it was meant to guide their minds to the far higher lesson that all who want to receive benefit from Christ's atonement must actually feed on him by faith and receive them into their hearts. Give you a few moments as the deacons prepare the table.